Kaylee, did you know that Quackbot has been implicated in 40 ransomware attacks over the past 18 months? Well, that came to a very abrupt stop thanks to Operation Duck Hunt. I think the dismantling of Quackbot, the recent dismantling of Quackbot, was one of the largest ever U.S.-led enforcement actions against a botnet. What are we, what yeah. are we talking about here, Kaylee? So... Quackbot is a bit older. It came about in 2007 as a banking trojan, but since then it's morphed into a malware strain that has been used since then by many cyber criminal groups, lots with ties to Russia, of course, naturally. <laughs> so uh, this is actually one of the, yeah, as I said, one of the most prevalent malware loaders to date. Um, and recently, the US, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Romania, Latvia, and the United Kingdom took action in order to take this offline and, you know, out of commission. I like the word action there. Um, how much of that you think is keyboard work and how much of that is like the cutscenes in The Born Identity <laughs> with people with you know, rifles moving into European buildings at a yeah. fast pace. I think it's probably more like cutscenes of people walking really quickly down a hallway with papers <laughs> to another person's desk, Hands sending a really memos. stern email. <laughs> memos, yeah. It's this is the reason that you know everyone's grandparents' computers are slow these days, right? Some of these things. Uh, but as part of the operation, I think the it looks like the FBI from the, at least the FBI's announcement it was that they gained lawful access to the Quackbot infrastructure, which is pretty cool. And I think they mm -hmm. identified you know something like seven hundred thousand infected computers around the world, two hundred thousand in the U.S. So the scale of this is you know pretty pretty serious stuff. Yeah, um, the DOJ said they were able to seize more than 50 internet servers tied to this specific malware network and nearly $9 million in ill-gotten cryptocurrency from their criminal overlords. I don't know. What do they do with that? Do they do they convert it to dollars and I know. use it for things? You always wonder what that what the crypto what they do with that crypto. Is there a wallet somewhere where in the treasury where they kind of own it? In a safe yeah. spot, in a hard, in a hard, hard wallet, what they call it. I know that they launder it a lot through other <laughs> cryptocurrencies, um, but yeah, I imagine that at a certain point, you've still got to either convert that into actual money or just spend your life making like darknet purchases, which maybe these people would do <laughs> if they're criminal the, overlords. <laughs> but the DOJ gets it too. And then the, that's yeah. me I want to ask one of our, our, our next government guests. Cause I, I, I don't, I was never involved when I was a federal prosecutor in, in a seizure of crypto, but what do you, what do you do when you get it then to convert it into something that can be used to like, I don't know, build roads or put a, put a wing on the FBI building in DC. You can't, right. you gotta, you gotta, it, it's gotta touch something where it gets converted into, um, uh, large brick buildings. Yeah, I'm imagining a, like a, a Fed standing in front of an AT, one of those Bitcoin ATMs, yeah. just like standing there waiting for nine million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> just gotta to go hop to, from one to one to one. They've got to take a flight to Palo Alto or to Brooklyn, you know, where, where, <laughs> exactly. wherever those the the, uh, the the Bitcoin uh, terminals are, where you could turn them into things. Exactly. Or just turn it turn them into ramen noodle at a couple of those vending <laughs> machines where you can use Bitcoin to buy ramen. Exactly. Uh, 
The part two that interests me from the report was that the DOJ did use some of their findings to kind of help help folks. They they recovered six and a half million stolen password and credential pairs, and they gave it over to Have I Been Pwned and Check Your Hack, the websites that uh, the the Check Your Hack website was. Well, the Have I Been Pwned is a famous you know kind of U.S. based yeah. website, but Check Your Hack I'd, I'd never heard of it before, but it, it sounds like it was erected by the Dutch. Yeah, I, I haven't checked it out yet either, but I'm I'm glad they did that, especially given the length of time that Quackbot operated just in general and the wide reaching audience of targets. Um, yeah, it, it's it, I imagine it would be difficult to f- figure out how to let all those people know in any other way. Yeah. This is great work by by the FBI and by their international partners to get this done. It's always good to see at least a disruption, if not a ton of arrests, but at least a disruption that understanding that folks are working hard to try to get these things shut down. I really liked as well the way they remediated it. it wasn't necessarily to like remove it entirely. It just kind of um permanently quarantined it so that the files that exist on those servers, they're basically um inert now. They can't do anything and nothing else can be installed. So that's cool too. It's like a reverse ransomware. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm your host, Jack Clabby here on the podcast. I'm a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA. With me as always is Kaylee Melton, the vice president of US remote publishing teams at Know Before. After a short break, we'll return and chat with Alan Liska. Alan is a threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. He's also someone with a surprising amount of connections with Johnny Dollar, the star of a mid-20th century radio show. That and more when we come back. Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. And welcome back. Our guest is Alan Liska. Alan, welcome to No Password Required. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I know I'm a returning guest, and uh, Rex has already said that my jacket is in the mail, so that's pretty exciting. <laughs> It'll get there in time for the cold weather. Right, what, exactly. <laughs> I have to say, our clients use Recorded Future a lot. Like It is for a spectrum of what you guys offer, but the very popular one now is the domain monitoring and some of the IP protection work that you guys do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your role at Recorded Future, which is a little bit different from that? Yeah. So actually, I am part of the internal Recorded Future security team, but I'm also a ransomware researcher. And that's because when I started at Recorded Future seven years ago, by the time this episode airs, um, uh, it was a very small company and you didn't get to do just one thing. So, you know, I did vulnerability management, I did security, I did ransomware research, and I even helped write our first Splunk app, uh, which was terrible. And I'm so (laughs) glad we hired real people to then build the subsequent versions of it. Um, and so, you know, having been with the company for so long, I've settled into more of a security role, but unfortunately, ransomware hasn't gone anywhere. Everybody knows me as a ransomware researcher, so I continue to do my ransomware research in addition to security duties. Um, 
the question that always bothers me about ransomware among, among many is like, given how complicated it is and how much enterprise and effort goes into putting together these things, monetizing them, why don't these criminals do something like legitimate? Like it's so much work now. Why don't they do something legitimate? Like what draws them to this? It, so I do think there are cultural elements to it where, you know, we know that a lot of ransomware actors are headquartered in Russia or in the CIS countries okay. um, where they have a really good education system. So a lot of really good computer training, not a lot of jobs. Um, okay. And so many times the reason they turn to ransomware is there are no other jobs to, uh, you know, to, to take. We see the same thing in Brazil. A lot of really educated cyber criminals that just can't get jobs. And so uh, uh, cybercrime is a way for them to make money. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of them are criminals because they're just bastards, right? Um, <laughs> you know, just like anything else. There are, you, you have a whole lot of places in the world where really educated people turn to crime because they like <laughs> criming. Um, but, but there are legitimately socioeconomic reasons why some of these people turn to crime. Is there you – know, Dwell time, this concept of how long the bad guys are in the system, you know, that that has changed. Can you talk a little bit about the change to dwell time? Yeah. So, you know, and interestingly, because – and you pointed this out perfectly, Jack. A ransomware attack is a very complicated attack. And we have two different dwell times that we have to talk about. So we know that there's a division of labor for ransomware. There's the initial access brokers that gain access and they turn around and hand that over to a ransomware operator, either through an auction in like underground forums or on talks or telegram, or they may work directly for uh, somebody that controls a RAS group. Um, and the dwell time for the initial access brokers, according to CrowdStrike is about 79 minutes. So that's from when they land on a machine until they have admin access to that machine and it's ready for sale. Um, and so then you go through the auction process of, hey, I've got access to such and such a network. How much money will you give for me? And then you have the ransomware operator, the person that moves from that, 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 that foothold to the rest of the network, steals data and encrypts. According to Sophos, that dwell time has dropped to about five days. Um, now there's a big, there can be a big gap from when the initial access broker first landed on it to when they buy a buyer for the network. Um, and, and so in the meantime, their tools and everything are just kind of hanging out for threat hunters to find, hopefully. Um, but then once the ransomware actors in, and you don't, you definitely don't always have five days. Um, I mean, we just saw this with the Caesars attack where apparently it was 72 hours. Um, um, but uh, um, but yeah, five days is the average dwell time from okay. when the ransomware actor touches the, the network the first time until they have the data and, and encrypt if they're going to encrypt. How often How much- does it get caught um, before it gets to that uh, operator stage? We don't know because nobody ever tells us when they caught somebody in the network, right? You only find out about them when the ransomware actor is successful. I would venture to guess it, they get caught significantly more often than they don't, but we just don't have the numbers to do that. I mean, I know it doesn't seem like – because it seems like there's you know 
well, there are thousands and thousands of ransomware attacks every year. So it seems like we're always losing. But I know from the the clients that I work with and from the, the, the companies and organizations that I've worked with, that there are so many times that the ransomware actors get caught, we just don't know about it. Nobody ever, I, nobody ever wants to advertise the wins, right? It's only the <laughs> the bad things. If it bleeds, I, it leads. I guess if it encrypts, it. Think of a word that rhymes with encrypts. I don't know. <laughs> what you know, um, I we we've talked on the program before about extortionate ransomware taking over from what regular ransomware. Like it's not anymore. I'm going to lock you up unless you pay me. Now it's. I'm going to lock you up and post your stuff unless you pay me. I mean, has extortionate ransomware – are we observing this correctly? Has extortionate ransomware captured the field or is there still regular ransomware happening? Both are still happening. Okay. Um, and the numbers are skewed a little bit by the CLOP ransomware attacks from this year because okay. those were entirely extortion and there were hundreds, if not, I think actually I think we're over a thousand um, victims that they've posted. So okay. that's going to skew the numbers for this year. I do think there is a move away in general from extort or, or from encrypt and extort to just extort because it's so much easier for the ransomware ah. actors. Okay. What we don't know yet is how profitable that's going to be Um, because nobody believes that the ransomware actors are actually going to delete the data when they say they do. In fact, you saw that in the SEC filing that Caesars did. They're like, yeah, we paid the ransomware actor to not post the data. We can't actually guarantee that they encrypted it. Like just, they just straight up said in their SEC filing, yeah, the ransomware actors are lying bastards. Um, (laughs) I in mean, a much criminals. nicer way. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Um, in, in, in a kind of a much nicer way. But um, but yeah, um, there there is definitely that interest in that. And in fact, in some ways, it's even better for the ransomware group. So you look at Klopp as an example. Yeah. It didn't matter who the actual victim of the MoveIt exploitation was. As Klopp sorted through the data, they found the biggest name company they could in that data – and that's who they posted as their victim. So you really have to think about um, you really have to think about not just where your data is in your network, but in your partners' networks and your partners' yeah. partners' networks. Um, uh, I, I I know there's a lot of crossover between New York and Florida because everybody from New York moves down to Florida. <laughs> um, there used to be, and actually I think they may still be there, there used to be these PSAs that they'd run before the 10 o'clock news that said, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your children are? Um, yes. And yes. I've now made stickers up that I'm going to have a tech crunch with me next week that say, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your data is? Because <laughs> people really need to start thinking about what their data supply chain looks like. Yeah. Because how many organizations know where all of their data is? Like your security team may know where some of your critical data is, but who has your HR team outsourced data to? Um, you know, who has your sales team outsourced data to? Who has your, uh, you know, um, marketing team outsourced data to? That your data is in so many different places and in so many other companies' clouds that, you know, you really need to think about and understand where all that data is and how it's been be protected. And I like the term data supply chain because we already have a framework for how we protect our supply chain. 
We don't always do it well, but we have a framework at least. So you can map that out for your yeah. data. You know, where is my data? How is it being protected? I like that phrase too, because we always say data mapping or data map, but that's not quite right. Data supply chain makes it seem like a continual process, whereas a map is like, this is where the countries are. It's not going to change. Data supply chain has that active component to it. I, I like that turn of phrase. That's a better yeah. representation of what it is. Yeah. yeah, actually, a couple of researchers at Harvard came up with that back in 2019, and I like oh, it nice. a lot. So, <laughs> and it's weird because you don't normally think that there's always this like tension between academic security researchers and practical security researchers, and and so like I'm always surprised. I'm like, oh hey, there's an academic that came up with something really good, and I have a lot of respect for academia. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not no, bashing them. It, it, it's just that sometimes that overlap just isn't there. You should hear what they say about you, Alan. <laughs> and they're probably right. Um, no, I, I mean, it. I'm the guy that wants to hit ransomware actors with drones. Like, I'm <laughs> sure every academic in the world can tell me why that's illegal and a terrible <laughs> idea and, and awful. Um, so, yeah, I, I – completely Look, would agree with any assessment they have of me yeah, that's if bad. They're right. If they're shutting down our hospitals, it's the, it's no different than if they were to come and just cut the power to them, right? I mean, it's yep, a kinetic absolutely. act. What, now, one thing the academic researchers do talk about is artificial intelligence. Is that going to solve everything? Who Who is that helping more? Is that helping the, the good guys or is that helping the bad guys more right now? So I think – I think there's some real value out of artificial intelligence, um, but it's like anything else in security. You have to be able to use it correctly, right? Okay. It's like organizations can get an awful lot of value out of SOAR, um, but setting up and managing a SOAR program is really, really hard. I, I read a statistic that something like 80% of SOAR installations installations sit unused after the first year because when you get it you realize how much time and effort goes into yeah. not just setting it up but then the care and feeding of it artificial intelligence is the same way yeah. it can do a lot to help and improve your security but you have to you basically have to keep feeding it you have to make sure it understands what's going on and yes the bad guys are also using artificial intelligence i do think some of that's overblown um, some basic things like may maybe making phishing emails, et cetera. Yes, we're seeing some of that. I don't think we're quite seeing it to the level that, that people who make money from being alarmist um, uh, uh, would like you to believe. But that doesn't mean you should dismiss the bad guy usage of it out of hand. Okay. Let me ask you just to, to pivot to folks who are listeners who are maybe just starting their threat intelligence career and haven't seen all the things that you've got a chance to experience. What what are the struggles that they should be ready for? You know, what are some ways they can overcome them? So I just posted about this on Twitter this morning. Um, <laughs> and, and it's really relevant with uh, everything going on with MGM and CSIS this week. One of the biggest challenges you have is victims lie about the attack the attackers lie about what they did and then randos on Twitter lie about what they know. And, you know, the biggest problem in threat intelligence is sorting through all of the lies to get to the truth. What can you say with confidence and what you can't you say? A big part of my week has been briefing organizations um, who are like, 
oh my God, did they really take it on the slot machines? Like, no, no, we don't know that. We we don't know if slot machines were actually unavailable. And even if yeah. they were, we don't know if that's because they shut down part of the network to protect it or yeah. if the bad guys actually got in. Like, you can't make those assumptions just because yeah. it was reported in a single source. Um, or, yeah. you know, and, and what's worse is, when the single source turns out to be right later and everybody's like, oh, well, see, they know what they're doing. And like they got lucky. Here's 10 times where they were completely wrong. Um, you know, the uh, uh, so you have to you, you have to understand the reliability of the information you're getting, whether it can be verified, et cetera. So there's a lot of rabbit holes that we wind up going down in threat intelligence that turn out to be dead ends. And that's okay. But of course, if you're new, you never hear about that. You're like, oh, hey, look, I found this thing. And I found this thing. And I found this thing. And look how good I am. And you don't realize, oh, these other nine things were dead ends before I found the thing. Um, I wish we shared more of that publicly. Like, oh, hey, I went and researched these 10 things. And um, it turns out that they were all stupid. Um, and then the 11th <laughs> thing was really good. So that, you know, people who are new understand that you're going to have more failures than success in threat intelligence. It's just the reality of not having the complete picture. Do you Is have that- like a, sorry, do you have a handy list of um, ways to quickly determine whether someone is BSing or whether, you know, it's a rumor more than reality or do you have to kind of research everything? So I always look at the body of work of, of somebody. Um, so if it's, you know, whether you're talking about somebody on Twitter, somebody in an underground forum or just a, a you know, a ransomware actor or, or whatever, I look at their, their broad body of work, which is why good threat intelligence takes time um, is you can go, okay, this person is usually has good sources, um, but they're also quick to post information. So let's see if we can get a second verification of this. Um, because just because they have good sources doesn't necessarily mean they are correct in, in what's being reported. Um, and, and, and so you look at that, um, you look at, you know, if you're looking at underground forums, you look at, okay, are they brand new? Well, if they're brand new, we don't have any record to go on. Assume they're an unreliable narrator. Don't completely discount what they're saying, but start with the assumption they're unreliable and then see if there's additional verification that, that, that you can have. Um, and, and then, you know, when you're talking about victims of attacks, Look for the weasel words. There are a lot of those. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, you get a post about uh, or a notice about a system disruption. All right, is there anything in there that might indicate that this disruption is a cyber attack, um, or is it literally a system disruption? You know, software upgrade gone bad, or, or, or whatever. You know, so looking through the weasel words, a lot of it unfortunately just takes time and. And Rex, you and I have talked about this before. Just like anything in security, it's how much does your spidey sense go off um, when, when that? And, and it's terrible that you know, with all the technology and all the capabilities we have, we're still relying on our spidey sense to yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, help determine the truth. But you have to do that. And as you move along in security, your spidey sense gets honed. 
But you also have to be careful because you can also you have that battle between your spidey sense and your cynicism. Um, and the longer you've been in security, the more your cynicism starts to take over. And so you have to be careful and set that aside, which, you know, again, that's another important point. Know what your biases are. Obviously, I don't like ransomware actors, so I tend not to trust yeah. anything they say. A lot of times they are telling the truth. Um, and so, you know, I have to look at when my bias is kicking in and I'm like, all right, you know, I don't want to believe them, but they're likely telling the truth. So let's yeah. let's start with that and go forward. Well, you know, speaking of spidey sense, I mean, comic book narratives, they often involve unexpected team ups particularly like late in a comic book run, how have you found parallels, you know, between superhero team dynamics and the efforts that you've had in cybersecurity on collaboration? I am in three or four different private groups with researchers from different companies who are competitors, okay. but we share information freely um, because we need to work with each other. We trust each other and and move forward and um and, and those groups are really important there's a lot of valuable data that's gathered there that we can't share publicly as much yeah. as we'd love to um you know the reality is we can't and so uh signal and slack are incredibly valuable tools for researchers to be able to share information with each other unofficially and without um, you know, w without worry about blowback from companies and so on. And, and, and I, I encourage more of that wherever you can get into these kind of private groups or make a private group yeah. um, where you all can share information. But, you know, it has to be a two way street. Like yeah. you have to be willing to share just like you, you know, you, you can't just take, take and take. Um, and, and I think those kind of private team ups are really, really helpful. Is there, Alan, is there a cool name for the group? You probably can't share it with us, right? But is it along uh, the lines? Are, <laughs> okay. So there are, a bun there are a number of different groups. Um, none of okay. them are superhero-themed th names. I okay. like that, right. but not everybody's a comic book fan, unfortunately. <laughs> the, um, can you share with us a, a real-world example of a time when threat intelligence thwarted a cyber attack? Yeah, um, th there there are a few of them that that I, I've seen. Um, you know, the biggest one. Um, I know there's one organization that I worked with that, um, sp specifically for Recorded Future, uh, we collect a lot of uh, Cobalt Strike um, beacon information. Okay, and one organization I worked with um, said, "Hey." We saw this uh, Cobalt Strike beacon. Uh, we got this alert in our firewall, um, but we don't think there's Cobalt Strike anywhere in the network. And so we're like, well, let's go ahead and look for threat hunting. We found it. It was embedded in memory, and it turned out their EDR wasn't doing memory scanning um, okay. for a lot of valid reasons. Um, it can be really expensive to do that. It can slow down machines and so on. Um, but, yeah, because the Cobalt Strike was entirely memory resonant, they would have missed it. Um, but in doing the threat hunting, we found it and um, they were able to stop the attack before data collection That's and cool. before uh, any encryption was down. Um, I have another example, not necessarily recorded future based, but of a hospital who um, 
and this is a great example of internal threat intelligence, which I love, uh, and we don't talk about this enough. So hospital had done a lot of user behavior analytics and kind of built that up. And they had one of their vendor machines was talking to a box that it, that that account shouldn't be talking to any other boxes right. in the network. And it's reached out and started calling to other boxes and they alerted on that and they isolated the vendor machine. And it turned out the vendor had been compromised by a ransomware actor uh. and had a RDP gateway. And so it had reached out to um, the, the, the attacker had, had instead of infecting the vendor had reached out to all of the RDP installations and was in those hospitals trying to install ransomware. So the hospital isolated it, alerted the vendor who then alerted all of the other hospitals. And it wasn't just a single ransomware attack. It was like five ransomware attacks that they managed to stop with that. And that was all based on understanding um, what machines should be talking to each other and really having good internal intelligence and good network management and user behavioral analytics. So and somebody made I the decision to call the hospital to the vendor. It wasn't right. that the hospital stopped it, you know, drew a line around itself and gave up. It went back to the vendor and said, Hey, you've got this problem. Please, you know, escalate. And right. Then exactly. And that is from. right. And that, right. And that is where, you know, us, you know, that superhero complex of, okay, let's save everybody, not yeah. just us, is really, really important. And so, you know, we were, you know, they were lucky, uh, you know, not lucky, they were well prepared and actually, yeah. uh, you know, follow through on alerts and, you know, were able to stop it, but then also stop other attacks. All right. So, Alan, recently your comic world and your cybersecurity worlds intersected in a really big way. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah. Um, So growing up, I was a terrible student, probably still would be if I went back to school. Um, And uh, so over the weekend, I would always do my homework Sunday night, like Friday, three o'clock. I was done with school until Sunday at 7 p.m. And so (laughs) – Sunday nights, I would listen, and, and I'm going to date myself here. Um, I would listen to Casey Kasem's Top 40, and then I'd switch over to our local NPR station, which played all of these old radio serials. So, like, they had Batman, uh, they had Superman, they had Lone Ranger, they had um, just a bunch of really cool ones. But my absolute favorite was one called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. And, uh, Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, was a freelance insurance investigator, and his tagline was uh, the man with the action-packed expense account, which I didn't know what that was when I was a teenager. Now I'm very, very familiar with what an expense account is. Um, But are you familiar with an action-packed expense account? That's cool. No, I'm familiar with the sit in a bland conference room and eat warmed (laughs) over uh, catered sandwiches uh, expense account. Um, (laughs) uh, Unfortunately, I don't get to see the kind of action that he did. Uh, So it is a little bit of wish fulfillment. Well, it turns out that any radio program prior to 1972 because of quirks in the copyright laws is not copyrighted. So it's in the public domain as long as it's not in other media. So for example, the Superman radio serial 
you can't just use that because Superman is in other media, and I'm sure DC heavily enforces that um, that copyright. Um, but Johnny Dollar was never in any other media. They tried to make a TV show of it. It failed. Um, there were no books, no nothing. And so I always thought I was the only one who really loved Johnny Dollar. But I posted sometime last year on Twitter about how I was the man with the action-packed expense account. <laughs> I was going to Australia for the third time this year. And a bunch of people replied on Twitter going, oh, my God, Johnny Dollar. And you know, they were really excited. And we got to talking about how he would be a really cool comic book character. Um uh, and, and I was like, yeah, you know, we make him a cyber insurance investigator yeah. instead of an insurance investigator, but, you know, maintain the expense account portion. And, <laughs> uh, you know, so I started playing around with the idea in my head, researched how to hire artists and, you know, everything else needed to do. And we made a comic book. Um, That's and- awesome. Thank you. And then we, we threw it up on Kickstarter and had a, very successful Kickstarter for um, uh, for the first issue. So, oh, that's well, congratulations, Alan. That's fantastic. That Thank is you. very cool. And Kaylee, I think we have something special. If I'm if I'm not wrong, you are correct. We okay. do have something special planned. So, to celebrate the upcoming release of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and it's a comic, we are going to perform a dramatic reading from the first issue. In this episode, I will take on the role of narrator. Alan, you will play Azim, the incident response lead. Devin will portray Michael Phillips from Hurley Insurance. And Jack, you will get to take on the role of your lifetime, Johnny Dollar. Alan, can you set up the scene for us? Yeah. um, So basically, Johnny has um, got into... um, got, Got into the network and he's trying to figure out what's going on and why there's been so many challenges with this particular case. So in this case, Johnny has traveled to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. A steel mill has been hit with a ransomware attack. And uh, Johnny is, or or the insurance company is concerned because there may be an insider threat. And Johnny is trying to figure out who that is and what's going on. All right. So let's get started. Close up on Johnny, finishing his scotch. Written in notebook. Expense account item, eight. Twelve dollars. Cab fare back to Gotham still. It's the next day. Johnny is getting an early start. Johnny is getting out of his cab in front of Gotham still. The sun is shining. Johnny, in a conference room with Azim, the two men sitting at a conference table across from each other. Did you tell the Stewart brothers? That the attack wasn't that bad? I did. It wasn't at first. Close up on Johnny. At first? The ransomware group didn't get any sensitive data, and they only encrypted about one-third of the systems. Recovery wasn't going to be too bad. I feel a butt coming. Close up on Azim, looking conflicted. Wide shot of Johnny and Azim sitting across from each other at the conference table. Look, we both work for the insurance company. Everything you say stays between us. I'll send you my initial report in my notes. Basically, every decision the company has made during the incident response was the wrongest possible one. Wrongest? I don't know a better word. 
Johnny, sitting alone in the conference room, looking at the reports from Azim on an iPad, facing Johnny, staring intently at the iPad. We see Johnny's face and the back of the iPad. Johnny is on the phone, close up on his face. Michael, this is Johnny. I'm looking at Azim's report. I think you were right. It does look like someone on the inside is helping the ransomware group. I'm going to need a couple more days to verify. Okay, we'll wrap it up quickly. You're not cheap. Awesome. <laughs> I, I could do. I mean, I could do that for. That's awesome, Alan. You, you should have table reads for that. You could. That could be another Kickstarter prize. That that's so much fun to do that. I, I think it would be a lot of fun when the first episode comes out um, to, uh, to to set up and do a, a, a table read like that. I mean, it is a radio thing. Um, and so going back to that radio feel would be fun and, you know, getting some of the sound effects, especially the scene where Johnny gets knocked over the head and uh, <laughs> and, and so on, I, I think would be uh, – would be really cool. Maybe uh, we can uh, at Cyber Florida. Maybe we can arrange a live reading of one yes. of the issues. I think that would be pretty awesome. Oh, I love it. Well, we're going to take a short break, uh, and when we return, we'll talk to Alan through our lifestyle polygraph. So stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right. Welcome back. As many of you know, the lifestyle polygraph is a test used by the federal government to determine if a person is worthy of learning some of our nation's most important secrets. Here, we use this technique for slightly lower stakes to determine whether our guest can join our fantasy cybersecurity squad. Alan, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? Rex, did I ever tell you my polygraph story? So... Oops, sorry, I hit the wrong button. Um, when I worked for the government, I had to get a polygraph. And growing up Catholic, um, I was used to confessing all of my <laughs> sins. But when I was briefed by the security person, she told me, don't be Catholic. Just you know, answer the questions, yes or no. Don't offer any additional information. So I get in to do the polygraph. And I'm a young, dumb kid. Um, and... Uh, we're about halfway through and the person administering the polygraph stops mid question and says, are you okay? And I'm like, I, and then I didn't finish the sentence. I passed out. Um, oh, apparently no. my blood sugar had dropped and that showed up and was reflected in the polygraph. I woke up with the guy standing over me with a glass of orange juice I drank the orange juice and I'm like, I'm okay. Let's go ahead and finish. And he looks at me. He's like, no, you passed. Get out. Um, and, and I'm like, oh. And and so my cohorts that, that I had gone through training with, many of them had to go back two or three times. And I'm like, just pass out and you'll be fine. <laughs> That's awesome. So I will try not to pass out during this polygraph. <laughs> yes, please don't pass out. It will be okay. difficult to get you a glass of orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First question. As a kid, you showed signs of being a hacker before the movie War Games changed your life. Can you share a story of your hacker mindset showing up at an inopportune time? Yes. So when I was in middle school, um, I uh, 
sat in the front of my algebra class um, and it was super boring. Um, and we had just one of those old fashioned pencil sharpeners, you know, the kind with the crank. Um, and I was always fascinated by how that worked. Um, and so one day in the middle of math class, I got bored and started taking it apart. Um, only I didn't realize that the class had stopped around me as everybody stared at me while I was taking apart the pencil sharpener, seeing how it worked. And then finally I looked up and my teacher's just staring at me along with the rest of the class. And he's like, are you done? I'm like, that's awesome. No, I'll I'll put it back together. He's like, please do that after class. Um, (laughs) And and so, um, but yeah, uh, I I always had an interest in taking things apart and um, uh, understanding how they worked. And did and war games changed it? Is that what oh, yeah. kind of changed it for you? Okay. So I had a TRS eighty Model Three when, um, uh, or as my friends called it, the Trash eighty, because they all had Commodores, um, uh, and, and I did not have a modem. Um, so I learned programming on it, but I didn't have a modem. And then I saw war games. And then I spent my saved my allowance up for the summer, and I bought a modem, and it was a coupler wow. link modem, you know, the kind you put the phone on. That's awesome. And uh, um, was a rocking three hundred baud, and so I, me and my friends would then spend like our afternoon finding bulletin board systems and other things to <laughs> call into and connect to, and uh, like, oh my god, there's a whole world of people like me out there. It was pretty amazing. So. That's really that is so cool. Trash it's also 83. nice to know that boys can make fun of anything, including, you know, uh, uh, the kind of computer you have. It, it's, it's always <laughs> your Absolutely. sports team, your clothes, your um, your computer type, like whatever. We're going to find a way to mock it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Number two, what sparked your love for comic books? Um, so when I was five, my mom took myself and my cousin to see the Incredible Hulk in a mall. Um, so just a dude in a Hulk suit. Poor guy. It was probably 120 degrees in there. And uh, like he needed frequent breaks. Um, and with that, um, we got a, a comic book um, – uh, an incredible Hulk comic book, and and I read through the stories. And now I had watched Super Friends, um, the you know the Super Friends TV show, um, uh, you know every Saturday morning. But then I didn't know that you could get them in comic book. And we had a comic book shop in our um, you know in our town, and so I would make mom go um, and you know let me buy comic books with my allowance. And so that was kind of from then on. I was a you know big big comic book fan. That's awesome. Uh, so speaking of comic books and superheroes, the third question is: Is Batman a superhero? So my favorite superhero is Green Arrow, and if Green Arrow if if Green Arrow is a superhero, then Batman has to be a superhero. Um, uh, yeah, I think that. I like the kind of superhero that doesn't have special powers, but that has spent their time and life studying how to be the best at what they do. Um, I think that that is a super 
power in and of itself. You know, when, when you see the, like the amazing thing gymnasts can do or what NBA players can do, um, like, I, I hate to elevate them to the same level as superhero because, you know, they're, they're just regular humans. But yeah, I, I, I think that you do have to include them as superheroes. Yeah, it's a, um, that was Batman. Batman was originally the world's greatest detective, right? It was, right. it was the detectiving part that made him special and cool. And then I don't know what happened with the movies. He started sort of leveling up and becoming almost like a metahuman with his fists and whatnot. And there's a song that was on the radio a couple of years ago by Coldplay. And it was very popular. And one of the lines was something, something Batman with his fists, like Batman's fists were the thing that made him special. And I would hear it. I would get so angry because it's like, no, Batman is it. He uses logic and, and perseverance and it's his it, detecting. He's out helping solve crimes. He's not, beating people up. That's not his thing. There's other guys for that, right? Like that's one where that needs to get itself back to the roots. He was a human being at the top of his training, but still a human dude. Right. Well, I have a, um, I have a Batman Sherlock Holmes crossover, um, that I, uh, absolutely, uh, (laughs) that, that I absolutely love. And, you know, Batman is essentially Sherlock Holmes with a utility belt, um, which is kind of really cool. You know, um, there's actually funny enough, there's a Johnny Dollar Sherlock Holmes crossover episode as well. Um, <laughs> n- not, not the comic book, but the actual radio serial one oh, wow. where he is taking over, where he's continuing an investigation that Sherlock Holmes started, uh, you know, a hundred years prior. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I, even when, and even when they took when Robert Downey Jr. did the new Sherlock Holmes movies, they had action scenes and fighting scenes in that too. <laughs> right, the opposite of what Sherlock Holmes was. He wanted to sit home and solve things from his chair. Right. He, he didn't want to leave whatever it was, twenty two B Baker Street. He didn't even right, want to exactly. leave. Right. <laughs> He's not like doing this stuff with the right with, with the fists. Oh, that's great. Um, what is oh. one of the one of the Oh, I'll give one last one because I, I, you can talk about the Batman thing because it makes you so angry. But there's one of the scenes in the newer um, Justice League movies where they're like – he says something like uh, – they have him say – Ben Affleck's character says, my superpower is money. Right. Because at least he agrees to pay for the Justice League stuff, right? You're like, all right, fair right. enough. Your superpower is money. Yeah, but you know, most of the time, uh, you know, money's not a good superpower to have, so <laughs> – no. I think about that if I order something on like Uber Eats. Superpower. Superpower. <laughs> Pay $5 to get something sent to my house. Right. Superpower I mean, it's all uh, subjective, right? Like thinking about Sherlock Holmes in this, like reversing that. He would probably right. think that you were a magician. <laughs> I'm still one of the people who occasionally wears his, uh, his or her cell phone on a belt uh, clip. Which, you know, it's that's a Batman derived thing as well. So. That absolutely is. That's it's either Batman or Star Trek, the Star original Trek. Star Trek, whichever it's a tri- one. A tricorder, yeah, or whatever. Right, saying. yeah, exactly. Which I mean, I think our phones now are almost as powerful as the tricorders from the original series. So <laughs> that's true. I, I'm still waiting for a lot of that other technology, though. I'm so, right. I just got to say. <laughs> we don't have warp drive. We don't have teleporters. Um, you know, yep. uh, 
Which, you know, I mean, teleporters would completely destroy the airline industry. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to hold <laughs> off on those. That's a fun conspiracy theory. Like, we actually have the technology. The airlines are holding us back. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, we'd have to have people other than the airlines develop it because they would figure out how to make it uncomfortable no matter what. <laughs> Absolutely. If you want your whole body to go through, it's an extra $50. <laughs> right, exactly. Um. Yes. Uh, no refunds for halfsies. Right. <laughs> you don't quite make it. No refund. Right. Yeah, and imagine having to track your body if you get uh, you know lost in the t- in the transporter. Um. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Question number 4. Again, on the superhero theme, if you could assemble a superhero team of four to protect the digital world, which comic book characters would be on it and what roles would they play? So I think if we lived in a world with actual superheroes, um, we wouldn't necessarily have a cybercrime problem. Um because if I had the Flash, I could just say, hey, Flash, the bad guys at this address, go get him since they seem to operate <laughs> extrajudicially. Um, like, go go get him. Get in and out of Russia. Bring him back. We'll have the FBI arrest him and hold him for trial. Um, uh, uh, so, so that solves a lot of your cybercrime problem right there. Um, but assuming that we're not allowed to operate extrajudicially, um, <laughs> I, I, I definitely would – want um you know rex and i talked about this in the past i want moon girl because i think she's a brilliant analyst and she's young enough that she's not kind of set in her ways like the problem with iron man as much as i like iron man is iron man thinks he's always right about everything and that's a bad uh, look for an analyst so moon girl has the brilliance but also is still willing to learn um i would like to going back to Batman. Um, I, I need Batman because Batman's going to be good at finding the the bad guys in the um, in the you know in the network. Um, I also need somebody who's good at motivating. So maybe Wonder Woman um, with kind of the lasso of truth to. Um, uh, 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 rope the CEO and everybody to get the budget that, that we actually need um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, force them to admit that, yes, we need this budget on kind of on the record in order to be good security. Cause a lot of times when I talk to security teams, yeah, we know we need to do these 10 things. We can't get the budget to do it. So maybe wonder woman um, could convince them to do it. Um <laughs> And then I'm just – I mean my personal favorite is Green Arrow, so I'm going to bring him in. I don't care. He can shoot the bad guys with arrows um, or, <laughs> or, or whatever. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, yeah, just because I want him there. So <laughs> We're going to have to yeah. set up a lot of scenes for Arrow Solve. We need right. someone to reach, to reach a button up there in the corner. Hold on. Yes. I've got just right. the- Exactly. So again, that is assuming we're not going with the extrajudicial capturing of the bad guys. Then if I have to use that to defend my network without being able to counterattack, that's who I want. That's awesome. 
I mean, with the way superhero tales go, I, I feel like there would still be some extrajudicial something or other going on. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, there, the, I, I, there needs to be something, um, you know, because what we're doing isn't working as far as uh, stopping them. Um, extrajudicial is not necessarily the answer, but we need to do something more than what we're doing. Yeah. 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 So final question, what fictional world would you most want to live in for a week? Oh, um, that's easy. Uh, I want to go live in Care Bear land because that'd just be a week where I could read and relax and (laughs) not have to worry about any cyber attacks. Um, I don't even know who the bad guys are in the Care Bear movies. Like, you know, yeah, occasionally they come in and do their thing to take over Care Bear world, but then everybody just does a Care Bear stare and it goes away. (laughs) I just want that week of not having to hear about cyber attacks for um, uh, – because there are no computers in Care Bear land. Um, I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but that's the one I'm going with. It is amazing that you see – when you watch a movie now or read a book about a pre-computer and you and you put it in your head about how it would be so different if people had laptops or if they had, you know, whatever they, whatever they had, how different it would be, right? You couldn't have like many of the adventures that were had in the old days because all the misunderstandings would be cleared up immediately by a phone call. Right, right. Yeah. But I also find it amazing that ransomware has become a trope um, where every TV show now has a scene where their stuff got encrypted um, uh, uh, by by a bad guy. And it's like, OK, ransomware. Yeah, that's a thing that it's so commonly known that um, uh, uh, that, you know, your soap opera has it and your evening <laughs> dramas and your sitcoms all have um, I'll, I'll have ransomware episodes. What they don't show you is the 40 SOWs that had to be signed to get that <laughs> ransomware off the network. Right. They don't show you that the 52 updates to the insurance company that were really important to get that done in the network, right? That's right. Exactly. You know, uh, uh, it tends to be a very sanitized version of ransomware um, where – it's one guy that fixes the whole problem or one right. gal that fixes the whole problem. It's never, um, yeah, what a real uh, ransomware <laughs> incident response looks like. Daily updates at 7.30 a.m., evening updates right. at 7.30 p.m. Every day for <laughs> six months. Right. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to, to talk with you and to have you on the program. And uh, if our listeners want to connect with you, maybe on socials or on a website, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, first, did I make it? Did I pass? Well, I, yes, Kaylee. Okay, I wasn't yes. sure. Okay, yes. you're I, like, in. I, yeah, you're I, in. I, I you're wasn't in. sure if this was something where you needed to send it off to corporate and you know get the results in two weeks or what. I mean, uh, that's the official process, but I'm right. going to go ahead and say that you got in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't post there except for corporate stuff, um, okay. uh, but you can find me there, I guess. Um, okay. And then I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's U-U-A-L-L-A-N. Um, my first employer was UUNet Technologies, an old ISP. And so I just adopted that as a name because that's how we named everything. You know, all of our stuff was UU Mail, UU News, UU whatever. So I was UU Allen. Um, and, uh, and I've just kind of kept that handle for everything. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Uh, it was great to have you on the program. 
Yeah, it's always great. I love you guys. You're amazing. So looking forward to Cyber Florida and actually getting to meet everybody in person. That's going to be awesome. It'll be great. That brings us to the end of the show. But first, Kaylee, what did you learn today? I learned a new term, weasel words, and I may or may not find myself in a rabbit hole of press releases about system disruptions after this. <laughs> I, I've been accused of a lot of things, including the occasional weasel word, but I learned, <laughs> I, I learned a new – that comes with the territory, though, of just, I think, being an attorney in this space. Mm. Um, but I, I have to say I learned a new phrase today, which was data supply chain. Uh, and uh, learned that it was invented by some researchers, and I really like it. I'm going to use it probably in in place of data mapping because the idea of data mapping is the static flow. Data supply chain, I think, is a little more accurate. So uh, learned a, learned a great word from our, our new friend Alan, and Alan, I believe, joins us now as one of the few two timers on No Password Required. So he uh, we thank him for that, and uh, as a, as an inaugural member inaugural member of the Two Time Club, he's like. What Steve Martin is to Saturday Night Live, he is to No Password Required. So uh, for the entire No Password Required team, I'm Jack Clabby. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. And if you know someone who might like it, Please share it with them. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. And a special thank you goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. All opinions expressed by the No Password Required podcast participants are their own and do not exclusively represent the views and opinions of Cyber Florida.